0: Hi, I'm Jimmy Blatt, and this is Inside Imigo, where we talk about Imigo's upcoming productions and the urgent feminist themes they address. We're recording on the unceded Indigenous lands of Jojoke, home of the Ganyagahaga of the Haudenosaunee Confederacy, Huron-Wendat, Abenaki, and Anishinaabe. Imigo Theatre respects the past, present, and future of Indigenous peoples in Montreal and stands in solidarity with the Indigenous members of our community. Today I'm talking with playwrights Amy Lavoie and Omari Newton, writing team and married couple. Their new play, Redbone Coonhound, is being co-produced by Tarragon Theatre and Imigo Theatre as a part of a rolling world premiere. It'll be here in Montreal from March 21st to April 1st at Théâtre Denise Pelletier, and tickets are on sale now at imagotheatre.ca. Out for a walk, Mike and Marissa, an interracial couple, meet a dog with an unfortunate breed name, Redbone Coonhound. This small detail unleashes a cascading debate between them about race and their relationship that manifests as a series of microplays, each satirizing contemporary perspectives on modern culture. Through its hard-hitting comedic elements, Redbone Coonhound explores the intricacies of race, systemic power, and privilege in remarkable and surprising ways.
1: I asked Omari to pass me just a single Kleenex from the... Kleenex box. And instead he gave me this unopened giant (laughs) pack of. I'm just gonna very quickly get the one Kleenex.
2: You're
0: welcome. You're welcome. I think that's linked to what we were just talking about. Like having the having the actors figure it out, like having the (laughs) production (laughs) figure it out. Exactly. My
2: my logic is you want Kleenex, you got options.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Any shape you'd like. You want to use two, you want to use three.
2: Yeah. I don't know which color pack you want.
1: I just want something that doesn't
2: make noise for the look, podcast. Look at him skulking back to the pack of Kleenex.
1: No, I got my other Kleenex. Hmm.
2: Oh,
1: domestic I stuff.
0: love this. It's so good, though. <laughs> it's good. Just, it's think- it, it's it's so good. It, it's the good stuff that makes you like when you write together. It makes it um so easy to eat. Like I eat it up. I oh, like, no, I'm, I'm, yeah no, but I'm I'm not just saying that because I have to. Like this play is one of my favorite plays that I've read in the last like five, five years
2: oh sure. thanks man. yeah yeah it's That's it's
0: funny. it's so it's so witty and it's uh and it it's just like it's it puts you in the room. it puts you in the room That's
2: so awesome. i wanted
0: to, yeah oh and 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 when I read it, i heard your like I heard your voices like i <laughs> like I imagined both of you there and so I wanted to know I wanted to know how accurate that is.
2: Oh, there's a lot of us. <laughs> there's a lot of our, our arguments in that play.
1: Yeah, there there are. You know, as a segue, just really quickly, because we had, we were, um, we did a talk before the show yesterday, and uh, it was a great group of people that came out. And one woman said, I saw the show uh, the other night and I found it quite funny. But after listening to you, now I know why. It's so funny <laughs> because we were just, We we just we riff and have all these like weird tangents and we don't take ourselves seriously and I think But I also
2: I also think honestly we're both always exhausted. Yeah and we also think everything's funny. So that combination gets like very candid conversations.
1: Yeah, we're just you know, we just want to have fun. Theater's fun. We just want everyone to be comfortable and you know.
0: So just jumping off of that, I think it's super interesting that you're able to take a step back then from that point like understanding your relationship, knowing that you, you know, there's definitely some very cool uh, meaty banter between the two of you. How do you then step back and, and start to decide what works and what doesn't work? You know what I mean? Like what, what elements from that pop out to you and say, okay, that will that make a good part of a play?
1: Well, I always talk about the play in the sense that yes, it is, you know, loosely based on us. And it's about an interracial couple. The premise is absolutely hundred percent autobiographical, but ultimately because this play is about language, our characters and the friend group are really built to contain and express ideas. Mm-hmm. This is a language play. Mm-hmm. So I think anytime it got a little too personal or we were delving too deep into like you say the banter we just had to check ourselves and go what does this play is a what is this play about how are we driving these scenes what do we need to, what is optimal here and we always had that as a sort of you know bouncing board for um, yeah. or barometer for you know the ultimate um intention of every every scene how those the through line like the mike and marissa moments mm-hmm. really sent us off in those fever dream like as we lovingly call them um satirical pieces. So that that's what provoked them. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, it's always tricky. And I say loosely because they are inspired by us and they, you know, a lot of the conversations are quite personal, but there is built in drama. Of course, we're heightening conflict. There's mm. things that we've never said to each other that are in the play, um, which was also really fun to kind of get in there but, and do.
2: But something we really wanted to say to each other. It's not that we wouldn't say it. We just had not gotten yeah. around to saying it. Yeah. yeah. I think it's important to talk about where the idea for the play came from.
0: Mm. Like yeah.
2: What, what, yeah. Where'd that start? So the the genesis of the play was so we for real live in the West End of Vancouver downtown and we were walking on the seawall one day and this dog showed up uh this well to do white man was walking this dog really nice dog and it was sniffing me up and down paying extra attention to me and I was I love dogs but I was like this is a lot of attention this is a bit bizarre and I was kind of like get a little uncomfortable Amy just loves dogs so she was just loving it and jealous that the dog wasn't paying attention to her
1: And the man was boasting about the qualities of this dog. Like, oh, this dog can run miles without getting tired. It's very scent driven. Once he gets a scent, he just won't give up as this dog is sniffing Omari up and down. And then finally, Omari asked, what kind of dog is this? And he very proudly yeah. declares, it's a red bone coon hound.
2: Like, look at me right in the eyes, like, no, and and like, genuinely, like, loves his dog, had no ill intentions. Oh, it's a red bone coon hound. Exactly. And I was like,
1: and absolutely no sense of how those no. words might land on the black man standing in front no. of him, whose no. dog has been all up on him. Yeah. Um, so and yeah.
2: I, I was like, I immediately, like, that sounds like some slavery shit. Uh, redbone racial slur, coon racial slur. Bloodhounds used to chase black uh, black people. I was like, this is some southern racist ass dog name, and I walked off. And immediately, we walked in the other direction. And I said to Amy, "Did you hear that? Like, can you believe that?" And Amy knows everything about dogs, so she'd heard the name before. So you weren't nearly as
1: I wasn't near. No, I I did know that it was a variation of you know, the, uh, uh, a coon hound. There's like a blue tick coon hound. There's different types of of hounds, obviously. The thing that is also interesting is they're not that common, at least in BC or in Canada. They're much more prevalent in the States, and particularly in, in the South, right? So it is sort of in BC misplaced almost. This dog, it, it is like a rare sighting. So I think that's where we were looking at it and but, going, ooh.
2: But now, ironically, I know two of them that yeah. live in BC since this play came out.
1: Yeah, but there huh. yeah, so he but that dog in particular came from the states. He was he was brought into Canada, so yeah. that was also another link <laughs> to what Omari was saying about that dog breed. So, yeah. you know, we we got into a ton of conversation about this dog and the insidiousness of language mm-hmm. and the impact of those words. And because you know, I think we get to a point where I want to alleviate the stress and the pain of that for Omari. So sometimes I get into a position where I try to not downplay it, but I go, here's the context. Like these dogs were actually bred to tree raccoons. That's yeah. like their function. And I, and I was trying to be an advocate for the dog going, imagine these dogs, like, you know, their DNA was spliced to, to be at the service of men for these evil deeds or these like ridiculous, you know, tasks. And it's not the dog's fault. But, so we. Have... But I
2: was just, but I was just like, I'm not saying I blame the dog, but like the humans could also stop using that name. You know, and I I talked about the example I gave the first time I went to visit Amy in Timmins, Ontario. I took a Greyhound bus because I don't like flying. And uh, we drove past the town called Swastika, Ontario. And I was like, what? And then I did some research and found out that like people have brought this up before and the town was like steadfast in not changing the name.
1: In their logic, which is not because it's, it's completely a, a neglecting everything you're talking about. The yeah. impact of language now, the context yeah. of language now. They were like, no, we were named this before the negative association with the words and the Nazis and all this stuff. So they were just like, we had it first instead of going, maybe we should rethink this.
2: But like, if your town was called like Murderville <laughs> before murder met murder, you should change the name. I'm like, I don't care what it used to mean today swastika is a very specific thing and if if i was jewish i mean not even as a jewish even as a black man i don't want to hear that like i don't want to ever spend the night in swastika yeah and that's- yeah
0: uh, yeah no yeah and, <laughs> totally um <laughs> so like so what is it about what is it about that conversation uh and and that topic that makes it uh, difficult sometimes for certain people to understand that point of view and and take action into changing those types of names.
2: So this is something that's come up a lot in conversations about the Confederate flag in the United States of America. And you know, I I shot a movie in South Carolina. Their state flag is a Confederate flag. Every street is named after a Confederate soldier. Uh, and I, I've told Amy this story before, but I when I shot the movie there, we rented a frat house to shoot it in, and the frat boys. When we, when we agreed to use our frat house, did a toast, right? I wasn't there, but my my friends were two white writers from Boston were there. And the guys took a shot glass. They said, all right, this going to be fun. And they just went one, two, three, cheers to Robert E. Lee, three, four, five, the South shall rise. And they were the nicest guys ever, by the way. I worked with them on this movie in South Carolina under the state flag, which is the Confederate flag. The street names are named after Confederate soldiers. And they, to them, it's heritage. And they go, my grandfather and his grandfather, they fought under this flag and I. the past is the past. It's just people who are so entrenched in what I think is the emotional meaning of something to them today that they can't see the other side of it for other people who don't have that same context.
0: Yeah. And, and a huge part of that is also, you know, the conversation around letting go, right? Yeah. Like replacing, like there's a huge fear of things being replaced, Right. And, and so, and, and when I read the, read the play, that's obviously being addressed that this fear of, of replacing history, replacing heritage in certain ways, no spoilers. We don't want to give anything away, but we're touching upon some of the themes that, that you address in the play. Cause, cause we do talk about a lot of things in this play, right? We, we, and from different angles, which is super interesting. And I think makes it very relevant. So, so what are the, so, some of the themes I think that, that, that we can talk about without giving stuff away?
1: Well, the, the Redbone Coonhound um, as a symbol sort of takes on a, a bunch of different forms for the main characters in the play. It becomes representational for everyone. It's quite literally affecting Mike, but it's sort of like we talk about a relay race and a baton being passed. So as it, as it works its way into the psyche of this play and into Mike, it then transfers and um, the meditations become about what individual people are wrestling with that's connected to all of this, like a post George Floyd world. Mm -hmm. So for Marissa, this is where race and gender intersect, and especially in their marriage and making sure that, um, you know, her palms are that they want to make, she wants to make sure that um, there's a place in the marriage for both of them to be heard and mm-hmm. for there to be less of a prioritization over one over the other,
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, without making the other person feel invalidated. Mm-hmm. Right. It's like, how do we support each other and give each other the space that we need? Um, while also feeling heard. And yeah. then as it works its way into the friend group, we have themes of identity, Yep. you know?
2: Well, identity. Uh, I, I mean, I always say, i think our play one of the main targets is people with extreme unmovable positions right the play mocks extremism and just sort of um stubbornness because any any issue that is worth discussing there are gray areas it's very rare that something like the example of the well, okay. I'll think about like the tearing down of statues, for example, right? There have been lots of activists, indigenous folks who who are rightfully, in my opinion, tearing down statues of horrible genocidal colonizers. I totally get why someone whose family, a white person whose family has been in Vancouver for a long time, might think to themselves, well, that actually, you know, that's my great-great-great-grandfather represents my culture. Like I understand where they're coming from. I disagree with them. But I don't think that they're, like, overtly evil or overtly racist, right? Um, but I think if you're, if you're so extreme in your position that you see everyone who disagrees with you even slightly as other and as enemy and they need to be destroyed or they need to be canceled, you just, I mean, a, a saying I like is that, like, all sides of the political spectrum lead back to the same place, right? If you look at, p- like, the extreme left and the extreme right always end up in the same Place because you take that circle far enough, and it's these people suck. We have all the answers. These people know nothing. So, so I think that's a major theme. It's just like a call for for moderate discourse.
1: Yeah, and also that it was important for you and for me that Mike was not this monolith, this black male perspective monolith. That yeah. we wanted a sort of catalyst and a and a counter to that, because again. Again, I feel like I'm talking about your points, but I think it's very interesting Omari as a black man, not fitting a particular stereotype and his experience, you know, with that has been very interesting and informative for the play and crafting Mike.
2: Interestingly, I just watched a documentary on the flight over about the tennis player, Arthur Ashe. I don't know if you know Arthur Ashe, but I, I didn't know much about him, but Arthur Ashe was this black Wimbledon champion who died of HIV. He had a blood transfusion. This is early days. But Arthur Ashe, there was a period in his life. He was he was like, because he was a tennis player, he was always at these country clubs. Many of them were still segregated at the time. And he was this, and he went to, I think it was um USC or UCLA, but incredibly articulate, educated guy. And he was labeled as a sellout and he was labeled as the C word, right? They would call him a coon. Whereas Muhammad Ali, you know, who was a more stereotypically militant black person was revered as a champion. And this, Black this radical black activist being interviewed on the show like today like in 2023 was saying if you listen to the things that Arthur Ashe was saying and you removed uh, how articulate he was and you removed his gentle tone of voice he was way more radical than Ali or some of these other people but there is this expectation I find as a, a black person that there's a certain uh, performance of blackness that you're pressured to deliver. Lest you be labeled uh, a sellout, even though most of my heroes—Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, James Baldwin—were hella articulate. It's a bizarre, <laughs> it's a very weird uh, thing that happens.
0: Yeah, the same thing happens uh, in Indian country, where you you know you, you use some big words, and then all of a sudden you're you're learned, and then um, <laughs> yeah, you're othered. You're othered by you know your own folk. Super mm-hmm. interesting. Um, yeah. And, and I think, you know, again, another thing that the play does super well is uh, it complicates things to the point where we do, I think we do get a really great taste of that mod, like that modernist discourse that you're talking about. Um, I, I want to jump or change gears just a little bit because I was super fascinated um, as a playwright reading this. Like I had, I had so many questions, but one of them was like, how do you do it as a team? Like the idea of writing, (laughs) writing with somebody else, that's a whole other level. But then when you talk about a married couple doing it together, like what, how do you break that down? Like who does what, who types?
1: (laughs) I typically do the typing, like the organizing, the formatting, probably just because I enjoy that stuff. And
2: Amy's a structure. Well, I've, I've said this a billion times, but it can't be said enough. Amy's my favorite writer. I was a fan of her and not just saying we're married, I was a fan of hers before we started dating. We met because she cast me in a play, right? So it's easy when you have as much respect and reverence for your writing partner. I just trust her. So and and we're usually aligned in what we what we think.
1: Well, I think we're married partly because of our our sense of humor and our shared taste in humor and it's really a our our little weapon against the world and mm-hmm. where we seek a lot of relief. <laughs> and a lot of healing. Um, And that's a gesture that we put in the play and and hope that the audience can experience through Mm -hmm. uh, like our sort of um, our tactic for that. But in terms of just like brass tacks process, Mm -hmm. um, you know, given the call and response of the play, the through line, which we would really kind of get in there and write in a I would take a character, and we would just riff in a Google Doc. So yeah. live docs are great because then we could just write as if it's like writing not into a void. Yeah, the void is another person responding, which is but, really cool because we we didn't use half of it, but there was a great momentum and like a like an just again like a call and response to the scene well, building.
2: I, I liken it to like freestyling, you know, yeah, like. We will usually have like a, a vomit pass where we're literally responding to each other. Like, if there's an argument between Mike and Marissa, we, we're taking a character's voice and we're arguing in real time. And then, you know, we'll vomit some stuff out and then we'll go and edit it down and be like, okay, what are the nuggets here that really advance the plot or really establish character? So, it's just this process of like freestyling, editing, refining it, you know.
1: I would say that for the through line to so the Mike and Marissa and friend track. Yes. Now, in terms of the fever dreams, For example, once we knew that this was the form in which we were going to be exploring this play, um, our brain started satirizing sort of pop culture, seminal pop culture pieces that, you know, were important to us. So, for example, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner was on TV. I was watching it. I turned to Omari and I go, I have this idea of how to satirize Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, which is a really... It's a big piece, it's, right? Because it's, it's, it's an interracial so oh, Like, it, it even a though seminal. he hated the film apparently, but um, which you know, good reason in terms of who the who it's actually for. Mm. But so I pitched him. I said, "Imagine, I won't say what it is to, mm. to say." Mm. what And Omari's like, "That's great." I'm like, "Perfect." And then I went away and I wrote it. And then we did passes. Yeah. So the Fever Dreams were really that way. Mm. Um, it became someone take the, the reins on it because then, it, yeah. And, and then, then, then passes. We'll, And then we
2: read it together and then, you know, identifying stuff that, you know, if there's a perspective that one of us feels is missing, that if there's something that as a black person, I'm like, actually we have to nail this point. Uh, I'll, I'll suggest it. Same thing. If I, if I do a pass in something and she's like, you know, from a, the female perspective, this there's a blind spot here. And just really, it's like, it is just this process of going back and forth until we're all happy with, mm-hmm. And usually we agree. Like I don't think we've had many. Like,
1: no, I don't think, think so. Like, and obviously, we are doing this with the support of Stephen Drover as yes. dramaturge and then Michelin that's Chevrier that's and that's Ashley that's Corcoran.
2: Mel Haig was a dramaturg. Um, Mel Haig and um, Mika, Mika. yeah, like Aragon. you just need like you got to like smart people who you trust, giving you feedback and 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 taking the the stuff that you. Would. And
1: and what I will say about the satirical pieces. Mm-hmm once we had them in a place because they're very vul- it's very vulnerable to bring satire into a room with people because as you mm-hmm. know with humor and this type of humor you have to get to the edge of the line right mm-hmm. and sometimes you have to dip your toe over it to see what that line actually is. So you need to be with people who understand the process and that are going to be honest with you and that we can all just be in that room together and go, this is the objective. Mm -hmm. We all want to strive to make this the best. And we know, we know what this is. And, um, and we need to surrender to that. And we've, we've just been so lucky to have people on board throughout the whole process that have been really game and, and really honest with us. And so that's been, the I guess, the difference making in terms of just trying to really make sure that it's politically biting without being insensitive.
0: That fine line, by using comedy,
2: mm-hmm. that
0: fine line that you dance, um, in my opinion, when, when well-executed, and talking about deep, hard-hitting stuff is, is, in my opinion, the best way to do it, right? And so, um, uh, can you talk a little bit about dancing that fine line and and if there were things that you ended up cutting and and did you go too far with some stuff?
2: Like, how did that work? So, well, a couple of thoughts. First off, we have a very similar sense of humor. Like, we were both raised on, like, Mel Brooks movies, you know, we both love stand-up comedy. Uh, like
1: Richard Pryor. And R- like, Richard you
2: know, Pryor, Sebastian Manticello, uh, oh Joan, Re- Joan Rivers. Like, I, we, we've been watching uh, Kunk on Earth on Netflix and dying. We've had to pause. We were laughing so hard. So we're aligned in our sense of humor, right? So that's the first thing, is we go, you know, if somebody goes, I just don't get Mel Brooks, I don't care if you don't think that we're funny because you don't get what we're doing. Right, so that's the first thing. Then there's the line. We definitely in rehearsals (laughs) would go all the way up to the line and sometimes cross it. But you could collectively feel it in your gut. Everybody felt it when you Mm -hmm. crossed it, and you went, "Ooh, that's."
1: Well, it would be this resounding, "Oh, that's the line!" Like there was no emotion to it. We were just like, "Oh, there it is." Like you know what I mean? Like we've
2: crossed it. Yeah.
1: Just it was like a like something popping out into the universe. Like, oh, I can see it now. Yeah. Um, But it takes that. Rigor and it takes, like I said, that honesty. What was interesting about this process is that when we got a little bit into sticky territory, it was actually because we were trying to our efforts of inclusivity in certain yeah. in certain satirical pieces we, were not um,
2: they, they they merited weren't, they weren't in a justified way. Yeah. by what we were exploring in the scene, and it, we had to just. I, well i can actually speak to there was a scene where i thought it was very important that we include the complex intersectional relationship between indigenous people and black people right because i know i know enough that you know during the underground railroad there was collaboration between black people and indigenous people in terms of finding their way through and i was trying to satirize these like white allies these quakers were taking who got most of the credit in history but i'm like really did you know where you're going like would you've been able to find it without you know but we realized that like it, it just there was no place for it there was we didn't have enough to hold the intersection between black people and white people and the indigenous character ended up feeling othered because there wasn't just mm-hmm. space in the play to hold it so in in my bid to be intersectional it ended up having the opposite impact and that was hard to let go but i, I again we had to have the humility to listen to our, I mean, obviously we had indigenous collaborators work on it who gave us this feedback and we had to let it go.
1: But also that's like part of the discovery of, of, of fine tuning. Like what is the play really about? What is the play trying to say? And and what are the ideas it's trying to express?
2: Uh
1: And, you know, I had to remind Omar, I said like, you know, the shipment, which is a play that we all love. Yeah. That was about, you
2: know, black identity,
1: black identity. Like I think, I think sometimes with, with this work, you go, we want to cover everything. We want to make sure that this is, you know, A, B, and C when really what it's, what it's meant to sort of be and say is this, in this format, in this particular incarnation, Mm -hmm. we can write another play that has a, you know, a more specific lens on that or in something else, but Mm -hmm. we just had to really kind of surrender to the play. Yeah and realize what it was, you know, what it was telling us it wanted to be. And you can again, you can only get there if you have the right people in the room and that, you know, everyone knows that this is part of it. This is the yeah. workshop process.
2: Well, I I brought this up yesterday, but it, you know, I've heard comedians talk about the tragedy of trying to do stand up in 2023 is that so much of the stand up process is going into small basement clubs on a Tuesday night and working out bits. And if you're a comedian, like all great comedians who live on that razor's edge, you need the space to just go for it. And if you're doing material about race or gender or ethnicity, your targets have to be on point by the time your special comes out. But to find those targets, you gotta practice, right? And now what's happening is you got people showing up at comedy clubs with video cameras, recording a bit in progress and trying to cancel a comedian. It's like you don't you you fundamentally don't understand how comedy is crafted.
0: Yeah, that's dangerous territory. That's dangerous, and and so then going into a room obviously with trusted folk is super valued. Yeah. Um, yeah. Not always the case though, right? I mean, you, you know, you're working with people you know and admire, but mm-hmm. I imagine that we probably can find ourselves in rooms where you're trying oh. to test those waters, and people call you out.
2: But we we're pretty quick <laughs> at identifying those people, and either I'm sorry, I just I don't pay them much mind, and. I try to get them out of the room.
1: <laughs> well, because you, you realize really quick if somebody is aligned with what you're trying to do, and if they're not yeah. right. Like I think there's a, a pushing of, of someone's own agenda into a play that is not trying to kind of take that on. And so it's a really difficult, sensitive space because you go, well, actually this is, this is, this is the lane we're in with this. And um, this is kind of what we need the focus to stay to. Um
2: but- Like, here's, here's a rule that I, I like, if you have to talk someone into auditioning for your play, you probably don't want that person in your play, you know, because it's no fault of their own. People are allowed to make the choices that they want, but if already going into it, you're not down and you need to be convinced. I know that the energy that comes in the room will be trepidation fear will be, and, and there's just no time. Like there's just, there's just no time when we're like, we're trying to do this.
1: No, I mean, as you know, Jimmy, intimately, like the the time you have putting up a piece in three-dimensional space is so rare and it's so important. It's like we spend so much time developing paper and pushing words around paper or digitally when we're writing for a live form and we have so little time in the actual live form Mm -hmm. to receive the information we need. And so I think by that point, it's essential that you just find the collaborators that, you know, are aligned. And it's okay. I mean, there are people who work with the same collaborators over and over again for a reason. Yep. I mean, that is just there's different tastes, there's different stories that are being told, different wants and needs. So but having said that, because of the genesis of this play and who we've been able to work with, we've just been so lucky and we feel really fortunate that we've just had a group of artists and creatives that have been that for us mm-hmm. throughout the whole, you know, years of development. So mm-hmm. Yeah, and I've
0: imagined that they've they've collaborated to contribute to the other voices, right? Because, you know, you two as playwrights obviously have pretty clear placeholders as characters in the play, but then, you know, trying to round out the other voices. I'm sure that the people that you align with who Mm -hmm. maybe represent other, other points of view have helped that along the way. Big big time, big time. Yeah. Like, so yeah, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. No, I, I, I I was just going to jump to something else that we, we, Mm -hmm. we touched upon very early in, in in this, which is the idea that, you know, um, a lot of what you say in the play are things that you wanted to say to each other, but never did. <laughs> um, and so I I'm, I'm only imagining that that created at some point some pretty interesting conversations.
2: Yeah. Well it's interesting because I'm trying to think now I, I think we actually we do have a pretty open like communication in our relationship. Amy, her family's Italian you know, or it comes from Italian, French, Canadian heritage, minor Trinidadian. These are not cultures known for for holding things in. You know, but I think what's interesting is when you write a play, is you get to make your characters the sharpest, most articulate people in the moment, right? So stuff that we in the moment we wish we could have said to each other, we can we can revisit arguments and say the 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 like super quick, razor sharp thing that we wanted to say in the play that we couldn't have said in person
1: or that there's, you know, there there's, there's, there's been time for reflection. Yeah. So there's moments that are referenced in the play that have happened in the past, for example, that have had time between for us to sort of be different people. I mean, to have, to have that acknowledgement now, or that lived experience between then and now and to go, Oh yeah. That's interesting. I didn't realize that that was sort of how deep that sat, you know? <laughs> like, I didn't realize that that was sort of how you took that or, you know, that maybe we should have spent a bit more time on that particular issue. Like, and oh,
2: well, like for example, forcing my my wife to host Super Bowl parties for a number of years when the NFL has an abysmal track record of domestic abuse.
1: You know what's interesting, and I will share this with you, Uh, so that part is completely true. This, like this NFL complex. And I don't know, I think it's really interesting because when the play is done in Vancouver and the, based on our director's feedback, women, um, (laughs) <laughs> during that section are really into it. Like, like when I, the NFL comes up as a sort of counter or a, a point of discussion, there is a sort
2: of this like eyeballing their partners and and snapping their finger. Like yeah. there's a lot, a lot of women justifiably loathe the NFL and a lot of guys to our to our discredit don't give a shit. And it's it's horrific. Like
1: so in the play that reference, um Omari's high school friend um, actually went to the play unbeknownst to us. He saw the play and then he wrote me an apology email about wow. a particular section in the play that he recognized from his our past. Yeah. And we got to talk about it.
2: But he this was like what, eight years ago? But yeah. Like from eight years ago. I I don't want to spoil it, but my friends had a really distasteful conversation about a player that was super misogynistic and super just disgusting, right? And Amy was like at Amy's home in her living room, you know, and, and
1: I was the only female identifying person in the small space. Yeah, which didn't feel great. Yeah. So, but so it's interesting, right? Like, I think that's 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 what's been really interesting with the play in terms of how it sort of needles these points of discussion and brings out these sort of subconscious sometimes layers in in individuals and also helps them confront um, complicated relationships, right? And we talk about this a lot, like these conversations in the play can be relationship ending potentially. Like these, these can be really explosive, corrosive mm-hmm. moments. Um, and that's okay. I think you get to a certain point in uh, in friendships when there you can't bank on history anymore or like, you know, high school wow. or anything to sort of sustain a friendship when there's such an evolution post high school.
2: Well, yeah. It, it, there's also, you know, your connection points when you're younger, Are so superficial. Like I was one of the only black guys in my high school, but we all played basketball together, so we had that for many, many years, right? And some of my friends have said shocking things to me. Like they've said, you know, we had the same experience growing up, though, right? Even though you were, and they had no. When I explained to them how often I used to get pulled over by the police or how I get followed around, they could not believe it. They did because they'd never experienced it, and they they did not they didn't know the different reality you can exist in while living right next to someone. And then you get to a certain age where people not being able to see you, to truly see you becomes a deal breaker. <laughs> you know, it's like, I don't care if we all like basketball, you don't think systemic racism exists.
0: <laughs> yeah, And that, that, that also applies to family. I'll throw that out there. Yeah, oh, That yeah. also applies to family. Right. And so, you know, it, talking to, to talking to a married couple who are like that's that's the heart of a family that that brings us to, to some of the stuff that the major conflict of, mm. of the play which you know to your point amy lee it brings us to the point where it's you know very possible in many relationships that's a deal breaker for when it when it comes out on paper that's high drama like that's the highest you can get, right? We're 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 sitting there wondering what's going to happen.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, and it it's interesting. Uh, somebody asked us about hope in the play, and Omari and I talk about our relationship in terms of working, actively working, and that to me is the highest expression of love. Mm-hmm. It isn't rose petals on the floor. Isn't these grand sweeping motions of romance? For us, this play is really representative of the the, the actions, the the doing. You know, it. it and top of the, this, it's a lot of language. But in terms of that, as an expression of how do we get through this? How do we work towards a future yeah. together? How do we coexist? Mm-hmm. That to me is, like I said, it's the greatest expression it, of love.
2: And it's also it's about a couple who, like the guys, is they're they're in their late thirties, right? This isn't about newlyweds. This isn't. This is like people who in their late thirties. They've been together for almost a decade. It's not will they, won't they? It's how are we nav- How are we negotiating this? Which to me is more interesting at this phase of my life than will they, won't they?
1: And that mm. you know, the, the ultimate message really is that there's always going to be a red bone coonhound. Yeah, like this couple is never not going to experience some form of red bone coonhound in their marriage and in mm. life it's really about the decision to work through it together mm-hmm. that you know is what it culminates to yeah and um, and again we talk a lot about that this play happens uh the conversations are private we wanted to platform the com- the conversations in yes. a private setting yes. versus a public setting yep. because we feel and it's true that the way people talk about the issues in this play publicly it's very different different. and we did not want a sanitized you know twitter debate we wanted what we recognize to be true and again you write what you want to see and for us in terms of this play it was a chance for us to kind of get into an interracial marriage and the conversations that we know
2: when we see interracial couples on tv or in, in the mainstream media uh, it's a sanitized version of a relationship where everybody's speaking in the most like socially acceptable quotes and they've all read all the literature and they're all super sensitive. And that's just not the case. <laughs> like yeah. that's not how marriages work.
1: Like the white wife has bell hooks on a holster on yeah. her hip, you know, at all times, ready to, just sort ready of to like, whip
2: it out. Yeah.
1: It's just, you know, I, again, that also t- not that it doesn't f- feel real but I, I i we want people to to see themselves in the play we want them to, to encourage them to work through to have those conversations that it's not about knowing everything but being right no. about being glossed over because i do think there's something there's a classism attached to this there's an access in terms of academia Mm-mm. i think people feel shut out from these high conversations or these high functioning conversations around these issues and i think and that to me, that really bothers me. Like I, I think that this needs to be accessible, mm-hmm. you know, these, these need to be accessible conversations. If we're all going to have them and participate, this isn't like, yeah, it's not academia necessarily.
0: No, no it's not. No. no. And and, and you, I think you do a really good job of not giving us a sanitized version of it, but a version that's I maybe, um, a little bit more on, on the same wavelength as how to how people think versus how they mm-hmm. how they act. Or, you know, mm-hmm. um, yeah. I wanted to to just talk a little bit about this rolling world premiere mm. because this is like this is something I I have not experienced yet. But you, it began in Vancouver at the Arts Club, now in Toronto at Tarragon, uh, and then coming to Imago,
2: bring it to Montreal. Mm-hmm. Um, where does, where does, where does that idea come from? It's a model that exists, uh, in the States already. Um, our dear friend and dramaturg, Stephen Jover was telling us about this, that they would.
1: It, well, it's, it's, it's a program that came out of the national new play network
2: mm-hmm. in the
1: States and they've launched a hundred plays over a hundred plays under this model. Yeah. And what's fascinating about it is that essentially plays are brought to market, so a playwright will uh, pitch their play and theaters can bid and say, I want to, I want a piece of that. So yeah. a, a playwright can have, uh, instead of one premiere production, mm-hmm. they can have up to 12 yeah. in an 18th uh, month cycle. And, and
2: w- what's brilliant about that, and we talk about this, Canada we find is a country that oftentimes is like all about uh, workshops and development and, and, you know, you get a million stage readings, but then you get one opening. And mm. if it's not the production you wanted, if it's not for whatever reason, if it's not the right cast, if it's not the right city, then your play dies, and you never know. You n- you never have a chance to see it on stage in. You never have a chance to know if it would have resonated more in Halifax or in None of Us or in you know. It just opens up your city, and then it has no more life. And I think there's something really exciting about knowing you have this these other. Uh, openings coming. And in the same way that a, that a film director or that, or that a screenwriter uh, gets to watch early cuts of their film and sit in the audience and see how things are landing and then make changes, you get to do that as a playwright.
1: Uh, the playwrights have to be brought to the others. There has to be budget for the playwrights yeah. to be brought to the city yeah. in which the play is being done mm-hmm. so that they can give dramaturgical feedback. They can change the text so they can work on it. So that is huge because mm-hmm. after the premiere production, typically playwrights are a bit shut out and left behind. Mm-hmm. It's then game for interpretation, and they don't have a stake in it. Um, and so for us, we uh, Stephen Drover was instrumental in bringing this model to uh, the table, and uh, now we have a co-production within a rolling premiere model because the Tarragon production and the Montreal production, Imago Theater, yeah. um, is the same. So it's the yeah. same cast, the same director. It's the same production same. traveling, yeah. but the Vancouver production, the premiere, uh, the world premiere, was a completely different yeah. uh, director. Omari co-directed with Ashley Corcoran. Different everything. Yeah, so it's
2: been fascinating too. Yeah, because we obviously, you know, we were so intimately involved in the in the Vancouver production, which was the first one to go up, and that information informed the script, and then we essentially handed it off. To a new team and we we definitely weighed in and got to watch but it was a more of a I don't know it was more of a advisory um position than being th- deep inside of it I feel like we're getting team-
0: to observe the interpretation
1: for the second preview we cut two pages
0: yeah
1: out of one of the the satirical scenes um we're still working the ending you know we're, we're doing a lot of back and forth we'd have meetings about different things I would zoom into rehearsals we would look at runs and things so it is a much. Uh, it is a um, a very collaborative process still, and Michelin and Kwaku are so great in
0: mm.
1: in their uh, response to that to the rolling premier model.
0: And so, it's the idea that at the end of the process, at the end of Montreal, you'll have time to sit down and and work it once more. Or is it in? Is it while we're in Montreal? While you're in Montreal with the show, that that will be happening.
2: Well, I mean. I I, don't, I mean, obviously, if it changes that, if we learn something during this run, there's changes that need to be made. I think we're both open to it, but I, I mean, I don't know how much I can say about what's happening with the script.
1: Well, no, I mean it's being published, so yeah. it's there is that as a a sort of you know a consideration,
2: mm-hmm.
1: but they're also very good at they understand that there's a rolling yeah. premier model, so we'll be, yeah,
2: it's being published, and there's a hope that the momentum builds and more theater. Like, cause it's only three, three cities in Canada we've been to. And there's a whole country that I think a piece like this would resonate with. So, yeah, oh,
0: I think so. I think it's, it's an important piece too. It will resonate with a whole bunch of places. I just wanted to talk about Montreal and specific for a little bit. Uh, Omar being from here. Um, mm-hmm. Why is it important? Why is it important for this sh-
2: show to be done here? Well, I think uh, anyone from Montreal can appreciate a show that deals with language and the <laughs> the polarizing nature and complexity of language i think montrealers will will really get that also a clash of distinct cultures mm-hmm. and and how you know the tension between the, like there's a lot of analogies that can be made uh, with the language uh, politics in montreal you know there's that i also think um my sensibility both of our sensibilities are kind of east coast like I'm, we're I, Amy went to the National Theater School and then lived in Toronto. I, I was in Montreal for the first 29 years of my life. And even though, you know, the play lives in Vancouver and was written in Vancouver, I'm a, I'm a black man who's been living in Vancouver since 06. There's a way more diverse population in Montreal that informed the way I navigate the world, even though now I live on the West Coast. So I'm, I'm very curious to see how it lands on people in Montreal. Me too.
0: <laughs> I can't wait to see it. Um, yeah. I just want to jump back a little bit to, um, to talking about humor again. We talked about using satire. We talked about using humor. I just want—I I just want to get a little bit more from you as to why it's important to use humor and satire to tackle racism, to tackle misogyny, to tackle systemic privilege.
2: I think all those isms that you just talked about are can be really can and are really painful and really heavy subject matters, and I think humor is an amazing vehicle for exploring really challenging material in a way that's palatable. You know, like I, I feel like, I, I mean, I, I know there's been different opinions on this, but to me, the movie don't look up is one of the most incisive uh, displays of the the horrors of climate change. Right. I thought it, it made its point in a way that was so funny and horrifying simultaneously that I think that'll have way more of an impact than watching a documentary about uh, global warming, which everybody knows is happening, but when it's when it's highlighted in ways that are so banal and so absurd, you sit there and you go, "Man, like we messed up. What have we become?"
0: Do you think that makes it easier, more difficult for people who are the butt of the joke to be able to recognize themselves in that? <laughs> Do you think it makes it easier? I I don't know. I mean, I'm I'm wondering. I'm trying to put like I'm trying to figure out how. People who, um, who 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 yeah, who are the butt of the joke uh, can 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 and or will take that.
1: Well, I, my experience is often people who are fit in the mold of what's being satirized don't see themselves that way. No. so they don't have a recognition of that as themselves. So oftentimes they can laugh about it because they're disassociating. You know, like their image of themselves doesn't match. And I think what's important about to us with Redbone Coonhound is that it was like equal opportunity skewering, like both sides got it and get it. Like it's not we're not picking on one in particular. It's really about people who hold extreme views that um, that are highlighted.
2: I had this random black dude who I don't know in Vancouver. Call me a coon after seeing the play. And I was like, you've missed the point on such a comedic level that I can't, like, are you trolling? Like, it was so, it was such a, like, I'm like, how do you not see you are exactly who we're talking about? You are who who we are uh, calling out in this play. But then I just go, you can't, you know, millions of people voted for Trump twice, right? What do you, some people just aren't
0: yeah. But th- what you can do is hope that at some point there's a trigger for somebody that makes them go, Oh, I think that way I've said that before. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. I think yeah. that's, and I think that's a-, a part of the brilliance of, of, of the text. I I really do think you're going to get those folks or folks. already have. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, we've, we've been, we've been lucky that people have shared that with us. Like yes. even yesterday we had um, a couple talk to us about just not knowing the the history of the language and the words within that breed title and that they felt uncomfortable saying it after hearing us um, yeah. talk about the play. Like they were just, it, yeah.
2: In the lobby, they were like, can we say the title? Like they wanted to talk to us about it. And they were, and, the, and of course they came before when they walked in, they didn't think twice about it. And they were so shook.
1: And he said, my friend has a coonhound and I'm going to tell him. <laughs> <laughs> And that's what it is. That's what it takes. Right. It's just like it's it's like a little like uh, a flicker of a flame. And that's that's how because, I'll, first of all, I would say 80 percent of people don't know that it's a dog breed no. and they don't know that or they they know one or the other or they don't know either.
2: I didn't I didn't know. I'd never heard that, that dog breed name before. It's
1: really interesting. Either people know it's a dog breed or they know it's. The, they recognize the words as offensive within it or they don't know either.
2: Oh, did you tell a story about the actor? Yeah. It, so this is hilarious. We, an actor who auditioned for the play, who's now a friend of ours and ended up being cast in the Vancouver production. When his agent sent him a script, he, he sent an email. He read the title and sent this long, angry email to the theater company saying, uh, I don't know if you are aware of this, but the title of this play contains two racial slurs. They're very oh. expensive. And he like went off. And then the... the um. Uh, General Manager wrote back and be like, "I thank you for expressing. Uh, I think you should read the play. Yeah, <laughs>
0: <laughs> good idea. And then become our spokesperson.
2: Yeah, you yeah. Should, you literally are judging a book by its cover right now. Uh, <laughs> oh, man, yeah. That's
0: good. Um, but is that like a, what we we're just talking about? Is that a part of the 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 takeaway? Like, you, do you do you hope that a certain section of the audience will leave?" with with learning something
1: I think being more mindful and I always my oh, like my only goal is that people leave with a sense of curiosity mm-hmm. about these things I think that's what it takes to be um to re- be able to receive anything mm-hmm. um, just being open and having conversations you know about the themes of the play and conversations that resonate with them so
2: and, and, and yes and Again, stealing from that uh, Arthur Ashe documentary, someone said of Arthur Ashe, he was one of the rare Black activists that could speak to both sides of the fence. Mm -hmm. And I was like, that is such an aspirational thing, right? But in this current era, it's like, I find that there are, whether it's media or art, there's like leftist art and conservative art. And it's sad, right? Because you're, you're, you're preaching to the converted. And I think if, if, if we get nothing else right, I hope Redbone Coonhound is a play that in some way can speak to both sides of the aisle.
0: Thank you both. This has been a really, really cool conversation. I look forward to seeing the play when it's here in town. Good luck with the rest of the run in Toronto. Um, appreciate you. We appreciate you. So you. Good to see you again, man. You yeah, you too. Thank you for joining us for Inside Imago, and thank you to Amy Lee Lavoie and Omari Newton for spending this time with us. I've been your host, Jimmy Blair. The music you've been hearing is an original composition from Redbone Coonhound by Thomas Ryder Payne. Redbone Coonhound is at Théâtre Denise Pelletier from March 21st to April 1st. Visit imagotheatre.ca to learn more about the play and to get your tickets. This episode was recorded at the Alain Community Digital Arts Hub in Montreal. This episode was produced and edited by Danarei Vashik. Talk you soon.